Usually if I use a big word, I explain it, and, and the word hermeneutics was floating around earlier without any explanation, so uh, you're probably thinking that's got something to do with the book of Hermon in the Old Testament. Um, it's not really a book of the Old Testament. It's, it's actually kind of the science of interpreting the Bible, principles of how we go about, like what's legitimate, what's not, and that'll be a very good conference for you ladies. It'd, it'd be a good conference for us guys, maybe, you know... It's called Her Men Udix, so we might be able to, never mind. How many care about the Super Bowl today? Anyone? Anyone care about the Super Bowl today? Why do we, why do we care? Why do we, have you ever asked yourself, have you ever tried to explain to somebody that has no interest in sports what you get out of it? Imagine aliens from some faraway galaxy were to arrive and uh, they don't have a history of spectating sports and they were to say to you, what do you get out of it? Do you get to go out onto the field and play? No, 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 no. Do you, do you, like, what, do you, do you, do you get rich off of it? Well, you could or you could end up with your knees broken. Uh, you know, bad things can happen in that respect. But like you, you would be hard pressed to explain why you're jumping up and, and, and yelling weird things and maybe saying things you wouldn't say normally, you know, in polite company. Please don't do that today when you're here at church watching the Super Bowl later for those that are coming to our Super Bowl party. Uh, but why? why? Why would you get so worked up? It's, it's just a game. All right? They're not even technically in Kansas. I don't know if you ever you know, picked up on that fact. So why are, why are we? Here's where I'm getting at. Some of you would be just as obstinate and thick-headed as the aliens trying to understand the Super Bowl if I tried to explain to you why you should be excited about the Lord. Like, like you're, some of you are going to take a nap. I know it. I already know that some of you are going to catch a, a little shut-eye because this doesn't interest you, what I'm, what I'm going to say. Um, so I'm tweaking you a little bit there today. But what... It seems to me, if we understand things correctly, scripturally speaking, that the only reason we can get excited about a ball game is because God built us with a capacity for joy and worship and excitement. And it really, in its first instance, should flow to him. I'm not against the Super Bowl or against sports. I'm just saying God's the one that really deserves it. If you look at Psalm 8, which was just read to you, it is, it is this huge psalm of praise. And if you've been studying hermeneutics, work that back in there. If you look at the first sentence and the last sentence, it's the same. Now, there's the, there are principles of hermeneutics that would tell you that if something is bracketed by the same thought, right? That might indicate what the whole sandwich is about. Like, it's not about just the bread. The bread it's, it's everything in between. It's going to kind of be, those brackets mean something. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Huh? If you don't whoop today at all during the sermon for God, as we talk, not for me, but for, for the Lord, then you need to keep your mouth shut during the game. <laughs> I'm just saying. I, if God's not more exciting than the Chiefs, then man, all right, that's great. Okay, oh, hallelujah. So uh, we're going to talk about the best 
the best fan experience today for the believer. That's, that's really what we're going to get at. How do, we, how do we get to a greater, higher fan experience when it comes to the majesty of the Lord? So this is the big idea today. Drink in the majesty of the Lord. Immerse yourself in it. Learn to be excited about what God tells us about himself and so, so that we would, you know, there's, there's going to be plays today, and I can't say which side of the field they're going to happen on. Maybe Mahomes, you know, hits Kelsey and, and it's a pivotal play and everything goes our way. Maybe not, right? But there will be moments where you, there, there rise to your feet kinds of moments. And there should be those moments in, in the way that we look at the Lord. So, here we go. Drink in his majesty. I'm going to give you five reasons. First of all, because he has set his glory above the heavens. Psalm 8.1 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's the same as the last sentence. And then he says, you have set your glory above the heavens. Now, what is David getting at there? If we recreate what lies behind this, it's, it's undoubtedly so that David must have gone out on just a very clear night, he sees the moon, he sees the stars. We know that from verse 3. doesn't mention the sun, so it's at night. And he's looking up into the heavens. Now, I want you to imagine what the sky looked like when David was writing this. I don't think there was a lot of light pollution. As big a city as Jerusalem may have been for its day, I don't think there was a lot of light pollution. So he goes out... Have you ever been out camping or something and you got out to just, you know, I don't know, some place, uh, you know, out in, in central Missouri or something somewhere and, and, uh, and you looked up into the, the clouds or into the sky and, and you're like, where did that sky come from? I don't know this sky. I've never seen this sky before. And all at once you're just the grandeur of that. And David is looking up into the heavens and and in essence, he's not only looking there and, and seeing the beauty of, of this, he does, but he realizes he's not looking at God when he looks up. He's looking at God's handiwork. And here's this, and even without all the space telescopes and everything, just the grandeur of that, and yet he says, your glory is above the heavens, intuitively he knows this is not God that I'm looking at. God is far beyond that. This week there was a headline that I picked up on and I had to click on it. I don't click on every headline, uh, but this one caught my attention. It was images of galaxies that will melt your brain. Has anybody noticed today that my brain was actually a little melted this week? Are you picking up on that? Yeah, yeah. I, so I clicked on it and it was pictures from the web so we used to have the Hubble Space Telescope, we still do, but now we've got the web, which is giving us even better pictures, more granular, if you will, down, you know, of detail of the heavens. And so we're looking at distant, far-off spiral galaxies and so forth, and it does, it kind of melts your brain. But then in the spirit of what David is, is laying down here in Psalm 8, what you realize is that is just the glitter on the train of the Lord's robe. He is above that. His glory is above that. So just drink that in for a moment. There is not going to be a moment today. I don't care what Mahomes pulls out of his hat I, or, 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 or Kelsey or Taylor Swift or Usher. Or, <laughs> there's not going to be one moment today that could compare 
to the glory and majesty of God. Our, our problem is simply that, that it's too hard for our hearts to take in. Possibly, possibly because our hearts have shrunk down to a grinchy little size, you know. And so our capacity to see the Lord's glory, to see his majesty, has just diminished with time. And we want that to get bigger. We want to, we want to drink in the Lord's glory, then enjoy the game, right? But get, get first things first. Second, second observation, it's kind of a paradox of a reason. And that is he uses the weak to silence the strong. Uh, Verse 2 here, out of the mouths of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now, David is being kind of poetic here. So, So in the spirit of hermeneutics, this is poetry. It's a different form. We don't want to necessarily break down every last little sentence and little word here to get at what's what's going on here. He's portraying this image of little babies in their weakness, not even yet being able to you know, fully speak or enunciate, but what's flowing out of their mouths, which would, which would be praise to the Lord, we would assume, that that is greater and, and stronger than the strength of our enemies, of the enemies of our souls. You say, well, when did a baby ever do anything like that? How many times did a baby do something like that in, in God's history? Let's go back thousands of years. There was once this, uh, this young lady, uh, don't know if she was an attractive lady, the Bible doesn't tell us, but she was a powerful young woman. Um, she was the daughter of a ruler, a ruler of a people that were really you know, harsh and cruel, and they subjected God's people to their powers. And, and she was out one day, and she heard something, and she looked over, and there was a little basket there at the river, because she'd come down to the river to bathe, and there, there was a basket up in the reeds, and so she sent her servants over and said, bring me that basket, and they brought the basket over, and she could hear as they were coming, there's this crying coming out of this little baby. It was a little baby boy, and so she named him Moses. And do you know without lifting a sword that Moses ended up just completely decimating the Egyptian powers and, and God's people were set free through him with, without firing an arrow or, or raising a sword. David himself, maybe David's thinking of himself because wasn't he practically a baby when he went up against Goliath in terms of a comparison? There's Goliath, this man of war, this ginormous man of war, seasoned in battle and, and, and David comes out against him without armor on and with just five smooth stones. Or what about what the prophet Isaiah said? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And if you're not real familiar with Old Testament, New Testament, and so forth, you're saying, well, isn't that talking about Jesus? Wasn't that a New Testament verse? No, it's an Old Testament verse, but it is absolutely talking about Jesus who came and was born of the Virgin Mary and and laid in a manger through whom, without lifting a sword, God brought the kingdoms of the earth to their knees and brought the kingdom of God and the, and the word of salvation to sinners like you and me. How many think Mahomes is the goat? I guess that's a legitimate conversation. I, I don't participate in such things, but not that I'm too good for it. I just, I just not that good at sports, but... Um, Here's the thing. Now, I did hear that this Tooney guy was injured. 
So that's, that's problematic. Like some big 300-pound guy had to be replaced by some other big 300-pound guy. So that's pivotal. If Patrick Mahomes lines up today behind an offensive line made up of 12-month-old babies and he can still win, I'll, I'll grant that he's the GOAT. But I don't think he's going to do that. Do you? No. We, they're, they're gonna, if they win, they're going to win through an abundance of strength, not weakness. But this is our God. Our God is so majestic over all the earth. His name is so great in all the earth that what God accomplishes, God does through human weakness, not human strength. That's how strong God's strength is. And that's, that's, that's what we have to get a picture of. That's what we have to understand. Third observation, third reason that, uh, that we should drink in his majesty is that he sits high but stoops low. He sits high but stoops low. It says the next two verses, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Don't Google when I bring this up. Some of you, I know you'd be like, God, no, there's got to be a word here. Just hold off on that. Make a note to yourself. Look it up later. But I don't think there's a theological term for what I want to say here. I, I gave it some thought. I looked in some of my smart books. I, I even resorted to Google to think there has to be a word. You know, you've got all these big theological terms like omniscience and omnipresence and all the omni words and, and a few others uh, for God's perfections. But how do you describe a God who is his glory, his essence, his being is beyond the known universe, who brought all of it into being through his word, but who also is so near to you that he cares for you? What, what is the appropriate word? I mean, it, it's limitless. I don't think any of the words I can think of actually fully put into words what it is this says. There's an old myth that um, elephants are afraid of mice, which I think actually just came from cartoons in the U.S. Um, I guess there's, science has looked at this, and apparently uh, uh, elephants are not afraid of mice. I'm, it, okay, so what I'm saying is if they see a mouse coming down the street, they don't cross to the other side. It's not that kind of fear. Now, the tricky little thing about mice is they're kind of hard to see, and they can sneak up on you and go, you know, and then the and then kind of a moment. But that's a jump scare. That the the, the elephant is like, oh, oh, you 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 frighten me, right? That's the but they're not afraid of them. They don't have any actual natural predators that that they have to worry about. But as big as 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 the elephant is in comparison to the mouse. Um, they, they really don't have rela- a relationship to speak of. Like, you won't find an elephant going over to Mr. Mouse's house, sitting down in his living room, having some tea and, and biscuits, and talking about the weather. That won't happen. Why? The elephant's too big, thank you. Yeah, the elephant's too big. He can't, he can't fit himself in that tiny little chair inside the tiny little house in the ground. It just it won't work. So there, there, there's just a, an issue of proportion. What amazes David so much, what he captures so perfectly in verses 3 through 4, is that the Lord, who is majestic, whose name is majesty, is able to be so, all of that 
and yet come down to our level and, and, and care for us. Love us, have mercy on us, be interested in us. If you could be uh, you know, Captain Kirk or Picard or whatever your choice may be, and you could go to the uttermost parts of the galaxies and universe that's out there and, and travel around in a faster-than-light ship, you're out there you know, millions of light years away. Would you care who was winning the Super Bowl back here? Would you know that there was a Super Bowl going? No, I mean, you'd, like, how could you be occupied with all that out there and all the wonders of that and, and care at all? about what happens here on earth, let alone with individual and every single individual of all of humanity. And this points to two other aspects about God that are just so mind-blowing. The first of those is his love. His love. How is it that God can look at us? This, this thing we call humanity. I mean, the smart people in the world, the so-called small, you know, the, the one percenters, the, the movers and shakers, they're probably actually sitting around plotting how to reduce the population of the planet. They're like, yeah, we got too many people here. We don't need all these people. How does the God of the universe care about every one of us simultaneously? To know our thoughts from afar, to, to, to love us, to, to want our redemption. I don't know about you, but I don't think we're that lovable. Are we? I mean, a narcissist would look at this and say, that's just how special I am, right? That God would love me. I don't know how he sees anything in you, but I know why he loves me. A narcissist would say, but if we're being honest, it's like there is no real good explanation as to why God loves people like you and me. And the other aspect of this is God's capacity to care. How is it that God's not bored with us? How, could, could God laugh at any joke when he already knows the punchline? How, how, how does God care? We're not that fascinating as far as I can tell. You know, I think we're already bored with ourselves. I'm bored with me. I, don't you get bored with you? Like it's the same old thing. Day after day, I really don't do anything that shocking or surprising. You know, it's, a, it's one day kind of follows the next in, in some sort of tedious monotony. I'm freakishly dull and probably I suspect most of you are freakishly dull as well. Why would God care? The God of the universe cares about you and your life, my life. That's amazing. That's, that's just simply amazing. G.K. Chesterton said this. I'm going to read this quote. It's a fairly lengthy one, but it's so good. Many of you already know it. He says, <clears throat> A child kicks his legs rhythmically through excess, not absence of life. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. <laughs> For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. 
It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. That's the majesty of God, that God can know all of us and know all of our sin and know how frightfully boring we are and care about us. That makes the psalmist look and say, how majestic is your name in all the earth. If we could, if we could but for a moment capture that wonder, but see, we've grown old. Even in our contemplation of the almighty God, we've grown old and bored. Isn't that terrible? Oh, God forgive us. Next observation, next reason. He crowned man with his glory. It says, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hand. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Now, these words should kind of sound familiar. Did, did, when, when, he, when David's saying these things, did it bring up a portion of the scripture to your mind? It should have, right? should have reminded you of the very beginning of the book, the beginning of the book of Genesis, because what is God doing there? He's making man, and he's making man in his image. So man is created in, the, in that sort of glorious image of God. And what does God do? He puts him in a garden, and he gives him dominion over all things that he has made. He makes man his, his vice regent, his representative, as it were, just a little lower than the angels and so forth. There's a truth here about man and about man's worth. Even in our, even in our fallen in our fallen state, we have value because we are made in the image of God. God put his glory on us. That's the reason, by the way, that murder is punished with the death penalty. Have you ever realized that? In Genesis 9, you have almost a repeat of Genesis chapter 2, where God says the same things to Noah, more or less that he had said to Adam. And he says this in that context, and if you wonder, like, why does he say it in this context? Because it's a, it's a repetition of the fact that man was created in God's image with God's glory. It says there, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So our value, even if the rest of, you know, men sometimes treat the lives of other men with great contempt and as of little value, but in God's eyes, every human life has value. Every unborn human life has value because they're created in the image of God. But is this psalm about how great we are? You might think so. You might think, oh, well, you know, this was all just prelude so we could talk about how great man is. No, 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 no. Hermeneutics. Go back. We've got this sandwich, don't we? Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name, right? Your name in all the earth. So what is this telling us about God? Our God took dirt. (laughs) 
He took the, the substance of this planet that he made, took the dirt, and he fashioned it into man, into his likeness, and he breathed into that, that lump of clay, he breathed into it life, and man became a living soul. Whatever value we have is because God is majestic, and God is powerful, and God's wisdom, and God's, God's purposes are beyond us. When we see human talent, like a great quarterback, I don't know, insert name here. I, I know we got some fans from other places here, so we, we just won't mention Mahomes. I'm sorry. Uh, or, if, or if we think about a great singer, I won't mention any names there either. Or how about an intellect like Einstein or whatever the case may be? We're very tempted to look at these people and go, oh, look how incredible they are. Look how matchless that person is. And we do start using that term goat, the greatest of all times in reference to certain people. But the truth of the matter is every time you see excellence or beauty or goodness, whatever it is you behold in a man or woman and you go, wow, wow. Consider who made the wow. <laughs> Consider the wow behind the wow. When you jump up today and you're like, ah, He's so good, man, that guy's so great, whatever. God made that person. God, and eight billion more and beyond. So yeah, it's, finally, we see his majesty in that he gave us a perfect savior. Now you're like, is this hermeneutically correct what you're doing here? Well, it is, I wanna show you why, because what I'm gonna do now is I'm gonna take you back over the ground we just covered, but more quickly, so no fear, we'll, you'll still make the game. Um, but real quickly, I want to go over this and show you how this psalm perfectly dovetails, perfectly integrates to our salvation, to what Christ has done. So you ready? Okay, first of all, go back to the, the initial thought there about how God's glory was set above the heaven. And, uh, and what does that say that relates to the gospel? How about where Paul starts in the book of Romans? When Paul wants to lay out for us an understanding of the gospel... And why we need the gospel, where does he start? He talks about how God's glory has been displayed throughout all the earth such that men are without excuse. The only way the gospel can make sense when we take it to other cultures and so on and so forth, people who have never heard of the God of the Bible, the only reason it makes sense is because what the Bible says about God, that his majesty has been seen. The works of his fingers have been known such that men are without excuse before God. And worse than that, they've taken the glory of that God and they've replaced it with idolatry. So man, first of all, without excuse. Secondly, we saw that the Lord uses the weak things to shame the strong. Our God is victorious over his enemies through the mouth of infants. Yeah, what does that have to do with the gospel? Go back to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter three, man fell into sin. He fell away from where he was intended to be and then God pronounces a curse upon him and the woman and the serpent. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He's speaking to the devil. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So what did God tell us within three chapters of the beginning of the whole book? That God would send a child 
to defeat the devil. That's right there from the very beginning. We see picked up in the, in the prophets as we spoke about, like in the book of Isaiah, unto us a child is born. And then it comes right down to Christmas morning when we see the, the virgin give birth to a child. And she calls his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And then think about the third point there. When, when we see David exclaim, what is man that you are mindful of him? What is, what is man that you care for him? The whole gospel is predicated not only on the fact that God, to God belongs all things because God created it all and God is above it all, but, but it's predicated on the fact that our God cares about our sin, that it matters to him that we sin against the holy God, and that he loves us enough to send his son to redeem us from our sins. All of that is just right, right here in, in, uh, in Psalm 8. Paul says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows that he cares for us because he sends that little baby to take care and, and to decimate our enemies. But then there's one final question, like how could God do that? Like by what mechanism could this eternal God, this majestic God who is above all the, the heavens, how could he pull it off? What kind of a person or savior could he send? Could he just send anyone? Could he send the mighty elephant or the little mouse? What, who could God send? What sort of a, what sort of a person would be, would be perfect to, to do such a thing? Well, the last, the last verses we saw recalled the, the first chapters of, of Genesis, right? Recounting to us God's creation of man and how God made man in his image with his glory. And yet there was one problem, that was that Adam sinned. Adam sinned and he plunged Adam's race into sinfulness from that moment forward. So how was God, how was God going to pull this off? Jesus Christ had to be born the son of man. He couldn't just be the son of God. He had to be the son of man and the, the son of God. He had to be the ultimate man, the man who took up the fallen banner of Adam and then marched it all the way to the gates of hell. That's what our Savior had to be. You say, Jay, I think you're pushing a lot here into Psalm 8. I think you're seeing things that aren't there. All right, let me take you to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2. Prepare to be amazed. I didn't write this. God wrote it, so... I can say that. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him for you made him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, now you start to think, are we talking about man, mankind, Adam, or something more? Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Our God sent a perfect Savior, 
a perfect Savior to redeem us. And we see it all the way back in Psalm 8, which isn't even thought of necessarily as one of the Messianic Psalms. Yeah, it's, it's not usually even categorized that way, but, but throughout the, this, this, this picture of God's majesty, we already see the majestic love of God. Our God showed himself in creation, showed that men are without excuse. He showed his strength through a baby to overcome his enemies. And though he is far from above the heavens, he cared enough for his creation to love them and then to send the one in the flesh created in the, in the image of God after God's glory to be a perfect savior and redeemer. So drink that in, dear Christian. How good is that? Ooh, yeah. I don't know, man. I don't know. When you're, when you're whooping it up for Mahomes today, I just want that little thought to be in your mind. Not that you should feel guilty, but you might think for a moment, man, why, where does this, where does this crazy joy come from over somebody catching a, a ball? A child's game. Why am, I, why am I so enthusiastic about that? And that's that capacity God built into you. But what really should fascinate us more than anything is the majesty of his name. If you don't know him, um, why wouldn't you want to? Why wouldn't you want to when you think? You, you probably like science. A lot of people that are anti-God think that science and religion are, you know, contrary. and This, that, and the other thing. Well, let, you, let your brain be melted a little bit by those images again of those distant galaxies that are millions of light years away. Just let your brain melt for a moment because consider this. Science today, they, they accept this, this notion of a Big Bang, but they have no explanation for why out of that Big Bang you would have a universe produced such as the one that was produced that would support life. In fact, it is so improbable. It'd be like filling all of the oceans with pennies and then saying, now, what are the odds that you pick out the one penny that, that, that we've written something on the back? The one, you know, that's the odds of, of a universe like ours existing. And science has retreated to the idea of, of like infinite numbers of parallel universes, all of which wouldn't work so that there would be some possibility that this universe could exist by accident as it does, you know? So you're saying there's a chance, right? Huh? Yeah, because they can't get away from the argument of design. I'm just suggesting to you behind that design, behind the glory of the heavens, there is a creator, a designer. And he formed man out of out of the dust in his image. And that is upon you. And though you push him away, there is something inside of you. There, there is a, a, a hole that cannot be filled with anything but God himself. And so we hold him out to you today. We hold out to you the perfect Savior, the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ, God's Son. He came, he died. By the grace of God, he died for sinners. So that if we turn from our sin and believe in him, we will have everlasting life. And that means drinking in the glory and majesty of God for all eternity. Does that not sound good?
We invite you. We invite you. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that someone today would just wake up from their slumber and, and they would hear the gospel. They would, they would hear about your incredible majesty and, and Lord, that you, you would rouse them out of that slumber and that they would see their condition that they would see their sin, that they would contemplate how great you are and, and how loving you are, and they would turn to your son and believe in him and be saved. We just ask that you do that, Lord, for your, for your children. We've grown old. In our sin, we've grown old, and we've grown tired, and we get bored. And God, forgive us that we even get bored with how great you are. Lord, may it never be. Fill us with a greater sense of wonder and joy in you. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.